Compassion is, is, is one way of looking at how we ought to be thinking about all sentient beings. We ought to be thinking about them with concern for their well-being. Um, when you use the term compassion, at least to, to Westerners, that suggests a feeling, an emotion. We could sometimes, you know, it's something like we might say empathy um, that we have with them. Uh, and that's, that's you know, something that utilitarians will want to encourage because we need to think about what it's like for other beings um, in the various possible states of the world that could result from our doing a variety of things. Hey everyone, it's Raghu and I'm back with Mind Rolling and I'm with Peter, Peter Singer and uh, we have a fascinating discussion ahead of us around uh, the, well, the book that he wrote is called The Buddhist and the Ethicist and it's conversations uh, particularly with this incredible nun, Shi Chao Wei. Did I say that? Kind of right. Welcome, Peter. Uh, Shi Chao Wei is correct. That's right. She prefers not to be referred to as a nun. Um, oh. Maybe she thinks that's too Christian a term, but she prefers to be referred to as a female monastic. Oh, okay. So I guess it comes out as the same thing, but she just doesn't like the connotations of nun. Well, after reading through uh, this book, and particularly, uh, She's an incredibly balanced, composed, substantial being. That's what she is. Never mind all the other stuff. Absolutely. You're certainly right about that. Yeah. Well, let's start with uh, your own history and how you came into uh, following this particular path. You know, I usually ask people, well, how did you wake up to the fact that we aren't what uh, – the culture dictates, the family group dictates, etc., and that there is a perhaps an opportunity to be free. In this case, I'm not quite sure if that suits, but tell tell us where, how you got to where you focused in your life, which is pretty interesting. I think that's a reasonable question. I think my upbringing was well, not exactly conservative, but um, certainly somewhat conformist. Um, my parents were immigrants to Australia, refugees from the Nazis, and uh, mm-hmm. I think they wanted very much to assimilate into Australian society. Uh, they didn't particularly want to stand out. Um, uh, but it also just happened that the generation I was of um, came of age in the 60s, in the period of the Vietnam War, of the student movement, um, and uh, uh, you know, various various protest movements, and I got involved in that as an undergraduate at the University of Melbourne, and um, I think that was a great freeing moment. Um, We were thinking, you know, young people were thinking about a whole lot of new and and radical ideas, different ways of living, and um, there were a lot of them around, clearly. There was, uh, I suppose, in addition to uh, Black Liberation Movement, which also was active in Australia with our indigenous people um, and the anti-war movement, the peace movement. Uh, there was the women's liberation movement, which was which was starting as feminism was, was then known. Uh, so it was easier to embrace new ideas. And I think my thinking about animals was certainly a break with conformism. I had grown up as a meat eater. Australia was... Uh, was then certainly a heavily meat-eating society. We produced uh, a lot of lamb and beef. Uh, in fact, one of the things when I got when I graduated and got a scholarship to do postgraduate study at uh, Oxford University, uh, people would say to me, "You know, oh, it's great that you got to go to Oxford, but living in England, you know, the meat is so terrible there and so expensive." Uh, <laughs> and uh, that was the reputation that England had, um, and. You know, yes, to some extent it was true because for the first year or so that I was there, I was still eating that meat, um, and 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 then I changed. But so that was that was my, you know, first big radical break, I suppose. And then 
thinking about our obligations with regard to people in extreme poverty and thinking that what, what most people were doing was completely inadequate for that um, was a second um, break. But, but it was that atmosphere that made these ideas more e easier to embrace. And we probably do need to include in, in these various movements that were going on. I was, you know, here in America, Canada, actually I'm from Canada, and, but I ended up on the West Coast and of, of California. And, uh, of course, psychedelics was a major, major thrust as part of all this, no? Uh, that is certainly true, yes. Um, I perhaps got into that a little late, um, but I did take uh, LSD a couple of times when I was in uh, Oxford as a graduate student. Uh, it was quite exciting. I was, I was interested in it because I was a philosophy student. I was interested in it in terms of what it tells you about perception and the way in which your perception can be changed by taking a small amount of a chemical. Uh, and what does that say about reality? That was, was interesting. But uh, yeah, I, th I think it was, it was mind-opening in, in some ways. Uh, and of course, but for some people, it was fairly destructive. I think I was, was fortunate in not getting uh, that heavily into it that it um, sidetracked me or, or damaged my mind. Yeah. Uh, it's a, yeah, that, that's a whole, th uh, I mean, that's a whole conversation. Uh, but I don't know if you know that this podcast network is Ramdas Be Here Now Network. Ramdas being Richard Alpert. Yeah, sure. I know. Yeah, I know who he is. Oh, it's. Uh, yeah, curiously, the last the last podcast I did was, uh, I don't know if you know Hanuman Das in, in London, who runs a, uh, go Dharmic uh, network. Yes, he's uh, a friend, absolutely wonderful. Right. Okay. Yeah. So I just did an. Uh, it was the second one. I'd been on his his podcast before, but I I talked to him um, just a few days ago. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Well, the reality is now it's all being hooked up and uh, for me. But the, he, I think, made an arrangement with the people who run the network to air that podcast, the first one that he did with you. And oh, I right. was meaning to say, right, oh, don't we have a mutual friend on Monday? <laughs> Great. Right. Uh, yeah. Wonderful. Um, now, I would love to hear about, well, a couple, you know, a, quite a number of things, but your meeting with uh, this incredible being, Shi Chaowe. How did that happen? And yeah, tell me more about her. I, I just found her fascinating. Yeah, um, so I first met her quite a long time ago, um, um, must be 25 years or more ago, uh, when I was invited to speak at a conference in Taiwan, where she lives, um, about uh, animal welfare issues. And uh, it turned out that the organization that was hosting this was um, an organization that she had founded uh, because of her concern about animal welfare and uh, the maltreatment of, of animals in so many ways, um, including in their ra raising them for food. So uh, that was where I first met her, but nothing, I mean, yeah, we met and, you know, certainly seemed like an empathetic spirit, but we didn't have a lot of time to talk individually on that occasion. Uh, but um, she invited me back a few years later maybe 10 years ago, uh, to um, another conference. And she took a group of us visiting speakers uh, to uh, another town in, in Taiwan um, uh, called Hualien um, to meet uh, Master Cheng, Cheng Yen, uh, who had founded this organization called Tzu Chi, which is a, an organization that of people wanting to help others, um, uh, but also um, encouraging its followers to um, to be vegetarian. Mm. Uh, and it's grown into a huge organization, has about 10 million followers worldwide. Mm. Uh, and um, so we, we traveled to Hualien by train, and uh, I was sitting next to Chowai, so we had a couple of hours to talk. And we talked about a whole lot of things, including, you know, I was exploring differences in her Buddhist outlook and my secular Western outlook. And um, 
I thought that was really interesting what we discussed and I thought the conversation was one that could go a lot further. So I asked her if she was interested in having um, uh, a longer dialogue and perhaps in, in recording it and creating a transcript uh, and maybe publishing it, it somewhere. Uh, and she was interested in, in that and um, set up uh, an, another trip where I came back to Taiwan. We met at a Buddhist meditation center, a beautiful place um, up on a, a mountain. And uh, we, I was there for about three days and um, we did have a long conversation which was recorded before an audience there of people at the meditation center. Uh, it was video recorded. Uh, it was transcribed. Really? And uh, that was the beginning of the book. But in fact, it wasn't turned out not to be enough for a book. That we There were still many other issues. So we then continued that dialogue, having set the foundations of it there. We elaborated it over email. Uh, and that took about five years because we're both fairly busy people. Mm. So uh, that's how the, the book came about. And I'm delighted that it is actually out there now and getting some attention. Yeah, no, it's wonderful. Who is she? And I mean that from the deepest place. That's kind of, you just gave us the, yeah, the yeah. esoteric version of how this all happened. But who is she that is uncovering this, uh, you know, really crystal clear uh, communication? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so, obviously, she's a Buddhist. She was brought up in that tradition. She was actually born in uh, Burma or, or Myanmar, um, mm. but then came to Taiwan. I'm not quite sure at what age. Um, but she's also a scholar. Um, she's a scholar of Buddhism. Um, she has a book which has been translated into English called uh, Buddhist Normative Ethics. Um, and uh, she's an educator. She um, has. She works at a, at a Buddhist university. She's, I mean, one of the reasons it took us five years to extend the dialogue is that for part of that time she was a dean and had a lot of administrative oh, really? duties. Oh. Uh, yeah, so she's very much engaged in the world. And I think that was one of the things that attracted me to her and to her version of Buddhism, that she was not somebody who wanted to spend many hours each day meditating to achieve enlightenment for herself. She wanted to change things, and that's why, as I say, she'd founded this animal welfare society, um, uh, and she was engaged in many other things, as as the book describes, including um, equality for women, um, including equality for uh, female monastics in in the Buddhist community, because the traditional uh, ruling was that. Uh, Female monastics were subordinate to male monastics and um, had to obey the instructions and rules of uh, of male monastics. And she was uh, opposed to that and protested against it. Mm, yeah. So I guess we should uh, we should get clear around the the in the very beginning of the book. You talk about how you how you see this world with all of our wondrous souls in this world. And, uh, and it just starts as a utilitarian. And I read as a utilitarian, I have never heard that term, somebody being anything, and a Buddhist, a Jew, a Christian, a Muslim, but I never heard utilitarian. I am like, you got to go into that, Peter. Yeah, sure. Um, it's it's an ethical outlook on the world. Um, it's 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 not a religion because they're being uh, Christian utilitarians as well as uh, atheist utilitarians, um, uh, and and I suppose in fact yes maybe uh, others others as well. Um, some find the ancient uh, Chinese thinker Mozi uh, uh, as a maybe proto utilitarian, but. Uh, Similar, the, the outlook is that um, when we think about what we ought to do, how we ought to live, what's the criteria of right and wrong, uh, the answer is always to look at the consequences of our actions, um, to ask what impact are we having on others and on the world, 
And is it a good one? Is it a positive one? Will it leave, um, will it improve people's happiness and reduce their suffering? And, and not just people in the sense of human beings, but will it increase happiness and reduce suffering for all creatures who are capable of either being happy or, or suffering? So it includes non-human animals, and that's clearly a, a bond that I had immediately with Shi uh, Chao Wei, uh, with the compassion for animals, which is a fundamental precept of, of Buddhism. So uh, that's the that's the, the view that I take, that um, I try to live my life conscious of what the consequences of what I do uh, are. And that means, as I say, for every, every sentient being affected by my actions, so not simply for my family or local community, um, not simply for my fellow citizens, uh, but for, uh, and not simply for my fellow humans, uh, and, and not simply for people living in the present either, because as far as we can estimate what the consequences of our actions are in the future, we should take that into account too. So it's a, it's a forward-looking view that says, uh, yes, you know, if you have to discount the future for the uncertainty of, your, of what, your what the consequences of your actions will be, but in principle, the future counts just as much as, as the present. Yeah, that, uh, we don't seem to have that view going very strongly now, do we, <laughs> with what's going on with our planet and, and our abuse? Well, certainly we, I mean, no, we don't have that view for uh, a number of reasons. One is that people tend to be, have swung back to being more nation, nationalist. I, I had hoped that we were becoming oh. more globalist. Um, it seemed for a period, I suppose, up to, well, maybe up to September 11th, 2001, that the world was heading in a direction in which barriers and differences were being reduced. Um, but uh, since then, I think we've, to some extent, gone in the opposite direction. Um, and this idea that our, our goal should be to you know, just look after our own country, look after the people in our own country and not think about the rest of the world is, is one problem. And then the other one is uh, not thinking enough about the future. And I think uh, with what we're doing to the climate of our planet, it's clear that we are not giving sufficient weight to the future. We're, we're probably not even giving sufficient weight to our, our own relatively short-term future, but um, you know, looking at as far ahead as a hundred years and thinking what impact we are having on the planet and how habitable it will be or how habitable large parts of it will be um, in a hundred years is is not something we're we're giving very much weight to. Yeah. Yes. You know, one thing you brought up in talking about uh, what a utilitarian is and and that particular purview. Uh, and you suggested, is that consistent with the Buddhist view? So, you know, of course, there's many different sects of Buddhism. And one in particular, the Tibetans, uh, the Bodhisattva, the vow, I will not go anywhere until everyone is free. I will not become free till everyone is free, basically. That seems to be quite in line with the utilitarian view, no? Yes, absolutely. I think that the idea that um, achieving enlightenment for yourself is not the be-all and end-all, because if you do achieve enlightenment, if you achieve nirvana and um, cease to be part of the world, then the bad things that are happening in the world will just continue. And you should therefore continue to try to improve the world as long as you can, as long as you have the capacity to doing it rather than try to escape the cycle of, of suffering and death, which, um, which is a, a strand of Buddhism. As you say, there are different interpretations. Um, and I think that that Bodhisattva tradition that you mentioned is something that is uh, important for, for Shi Chao Wei. Um, and she's part of this network of engaged Buddhists um, who do want to be engaged in the world, and it is an international network. So uh, I think that's that's important as to why we were able to have this dialogue and why we were able to find significant commonalities 
um, in our ideas, uh, which we would not have had if she thought the prime duty that for her for her was to enlighten herself to yeah. meditate and study to the point at which she personally achieved enlightenment. Yeah. And then, so you, I love the back and forth, by the way, in the book, you know, from you to her and so on. Did she speak English or did you need a translator? She speaks some English. As I said, we had that conversation on the train and she she was speaking English then. Um, But for the book, she wanted to make sure that she was speaking precisely. And so we did have a translator. Um, Yes. Um. Anyhow, you talk to her about, you know, or pose that Buddhism has no position on the existence of God, either nor, not for or against it. I, I, we've had, uh, with Ramdas before he died, we spent, a, uh, we did a lot of uh, retreats in Maui where he lived. And we would always have, he had very close friends that were Buddhists. In fact, uh, not Tibetan Buddhists. They were actually, you know, Westerners from America. Jack Cornfield being one of them. I don't know if you know who Jack is. Um, but he would always, he would start talking and then he might talk about soul, right? He used to talk about soul land. And then he'd do it. He'd look over at Jack or Joseph Colts, you know, the other, Roshi Joan Halifax. And he'd sort of shyly smile, like, sorry, I even mentioned that word to you, right? Mm-hmm. Implying there's a God uh, the, and, you know, the, a soul. And they would laugh at him and all that. But we used to speak to it in a, in a way that uh, what we learned when I went to India, when Ramdas went back the uh, second time and a bunch of Westerners, young Westerners went and joined him over there to meet this amazing being in name of Neem Karoli Bala. And the, the, the message from the get-go was there's only one thing going on. It's expressed in many different ways, but there's only one thing going on. There's no difference between this, that, you know, Christ, Mohammed, Krishna, blah, blah, blah. So I always thought, because and, and it really struck me when... Chao Wei's uh, response to that particular question. Um, she says, Buddhism teaches that this world is not created by a, uh, not created by a single creator. The world is working in interdependent coordination. So suddenly, here we have, it's called interdependent coordination, or it's called utilitarianism, or it's called soul, or it's... Right? I mean, am yeah. I oversimplifying and being naive, Peter? I don't know. Um, I don't think they mean all those things do mean the same thing. Um, no. Uh, because, you know, it does make a difference if you think the world was created by a divine creator with, uh, you know, who was a conscious being with purposes. Um, that is different, I think, from, from what uh i believe you know as i say there are utilitarians who believe that um the reverend william paley was a well-known utilitarian oh, really? in the 18th century yeah around the same time as jeremy bentham um who's much better known today but actually paley's uh book about uh, i can't remember the exact title principles of morality or some, some general title like that um it sold more copies in in his lifetime than bentham sold of his works uh so um you know whether you whether you you can be a utilitarian independently of whether you believe that there was a divine creator or there wasn't. Um, as I say, I'm a secular utilitarian. I don't think that there was, um, and I don't think that Chao Wei um, believes that there is, and she is maintaining that that is the true Buddhist view that there is no divine creator. Um, that essentially, you know, what does this interdependent uh, coordination or origination actually? mean i mean she's basically i think saying look um you know everything has a complex network of causes um and 
that's been continuing indefinitely, I think, would, would be her view. So, uh, in that sense, she, you know, if you pressed her on it, um, well, if there wasn't a creator, has the universe always existed? Her answer would be yes, it's always existed. Um, and, uh, you know, but it's not a it's not a it's not a personal thing. It's not a thing that was designed by a conscious being with a purpose. You know, when I did go to India and meet this being, and uh, I totally got this, and and you know this this practice. I mean, this particular path in India is called Bhakti Yoga, right? The Yoga of the Heart. Mm-hmm. which, you know, the practice is that you merge with that supreme being. So I didn't, that never occurred to me because when I went there, it was much more of a tendency towards Buddhism that made sense to me. And mm-hmm. I'm talking, and I was, of course, really young there, early 20s. Uh, and... Um, It was writ large by this being in that I saw that there was no one planning, doing, thinking, or any of that kind of stuff that I was used to. It was, it was just naturally happening. And it was more, it was more about the, the coordination of, of it all, of, of, of the, of nature of the stars of the earth it was just it happened in the way in an intelligent and skillful way though is is, that's what i felt then i've never really thought about it in these terms before but yeah so i think you can have us i mean god never i could barely use that word all through my life it was like you know it just didn't have the kind of meaning. I couldn't connect with it the way that I did connect with it through psychedelics, which is why I asked that question. Before. Uh-huh, right. It was okay. so. Then you certainly do get the interconnected, um, interdependent, interdependent uh, coordination. Uh, so, yeah. Anyhow, I'm just spouting my thing about. I think you know that uh, it it boils down to what actually what you said about what in terms of utilitarianism is what is the result of your actions, you know right that and she talks about the principles of having compassion towards those who are suffering in anguish, including all of our worlds, not just us humans, and um, yeah, how does compassion? fall into the utilitarian purview well um compassion is 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 one way of looking at how we ought to be thinking about all sentient beings we ought to be thinking about them with concern for their well-being um when you use the term compassion at least to to westerners that suggests a feeling, an emotion, we could sometimes, you know, it's something like we might say empathy um, that we have with them. Uh, and that's that's you know, something that utilitarians will want to encourage because we need to think about what it's like for other beings um, in the various possible states of the world that could result from our doing a variety of things, right? So, um we need to think, what is it like for people in extreme poverty? Um, and what will it be like if we are able to support an organization that will help them to work their way out of poverty or just help them to get basic health care so that their children don't die um, or sleep under bed nets so they don't get malaria? So those sorts of things will require empathy. And and what is it like to be a chicken in a factory farm crowded in a shed with 20,000 other chickens? That's more difficult for us to un- to understand, but still, we can, I think, have some understanding of that, that that's not a good life for a chicken. Uh, um, and that can be done through compassion, um, and it can also be done through scientific study of what 
that is life through through well with humans in asking them finding out um, with animals in understanding their behavior and seeing how it reflects uh, whether they are in distress or in pain or uh, stressed or whether they are content um, so compassion is one way of getting to the desirable outcome for a utilitarian um, but as I say, it, it may not be the only one. You could say, well, look, I just happen to be the kind of person who doesn't feel much compassion for others. But at an intellectual level, I recognize that if they're capable of suffering, it's better that they don't suffer. Um, and if if that's the path that you choose to take, then that's fine too. You're the, the consequences of your actions may be just as good as the person who is moved by compassion, although you're coming to the same point through a, a different route. Mm. At one point here uh, in speaking to this, you say, we cannot just hold that whatever is natural to us is right. Because, of course, there are other elements of our nature, such as hatred of outsiders. <laughs> right. That we would not think right, think right at all. If we cannot simply appeal to nature, how do we reach the judgment? that we endorse compassion for those beings who are suffering, but we refuse to endorse hatred of outsiders. Can you parse that out? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's very often people want to try to draw conclusions from human nature. And there's a whole tradition which um, you know, arguably goes back to the Stoics, but certainly um, goes back to medieval Christian theologians like Thomas Aquinas, um, which is called the natural law tradition, where people say, well, um, our nature is good and we want to follow our nature. Uh, sometimes our nature gets corrupted and um, bad things result from that. But if we truly understand our nature and follow it, we'll do good. Um, I think that's a pre-scientific understanding of, of human nature. I think it's a, it's a value-laden understanding in which we say, well, the things that we think of as, as, as good, uh, you know, uh, kindness, compassion to others, uh, caring for others, uh, strong family bonds and so on, we think of them as uh, natural. And the other things that we don't like, like, you know, uh, hatred of strangers or xenophobia, um, readiness to go to war against strangers and against people who are different from us, we don't like them that so we say, oh, that's a corruption of our human nature. Uh, that's something that has happened through society, or I don't know the the weapons manufacturers seizing control of of government and influencing our behaviour. Um, but I don't I don't really see that as necessarily a true picture, right? I, I think that when you understand evolution, it's it's perfectly plausible to think that um, we have evolved with a preference for people like us over people who look differently from us, or strangers, uh, because that might have helped our group to survive. Um, get rid of the rivals, and, and then our group will survive, and therefore our genes will multiply within our group. Um, and, and so it's not at all implausible that we have evolved such tendencies. But um, that doesn't mean that they're right or that we should follow them, because the result of... Um, hatred of strangers is, of course, disastrous for not only for the strangers, but very often for us. Um, you know, we go to war, um, we may get killed ourselves, the ones we love may get killed, uh, our country may be devastated. Uh, those are not things that anybody in their right mind would think of as good. But don't you think that this this horrible polarization you know and and certainly what's going on well in this country your country uh it's it's pretty awful in many different ways you just had that that whole thing about indigenous people not allowing them to take part right people voted against them being allowed to take part in australia is that not true no no they do take part in australia they they, they vote like anybody else what um, there was something that cut them up. There was a referendum about giving them about creating a, an additional chamber of parliament specifically for an indigenous voice, um, so that it would be a voice to parliament. It would not have uh, veto or legislative powers. 
but it would be a voice to advise Parliament on the views of Indigenous people on matters in the country. Um, but you know, it, it the fact it was rejected, and I was disappointed that it was rejected. I think that um, it would have been uh, a very positive gesture to help Indigenous people feel that that they have a voice because they're a very small minority, right? As compared with um, African Americans, for example, with blacks, um, they're much much smaller percentage of the population. So in electoral terms, although they get votes and they have voting rights like anybody else, in electoral terms, they're not very significant. It's not that, it's not that politicians need to win the indigenous vote in order to hold office. They right. don't. Yeah. Um, right. So this was a way of re nevertheless recognizing that they are the original inhabitants, the original human inhabitants of Australia um, and, and that they have particular needs and that uh, parliament should at least listen to those needs. Um, so, and, and yeah, that's why I regret that it was rejected, but um, but it doesn't mean that they're not equal citizens. Yeah, no, I didn't mean it that way. I just didn't know exactly what the referendum was. Yeah. Uh, I've been speaking to uh, compatriots of yours on podcasts recently. It's amazing. Uh, uh, actually, an indigenous person wrote a beautiful mm -hmm. book, uh, uh, about indigenous wisdom and so on. Um, okay, but back to this outsider thing. I mean, there are causes and conditions. Take somebody growing up here in the States, in the South, and they grew up with this, uh, within a family, even a loving family. But there was this horrible animosity towards African-Americans. And that got passed down to you very easily, right? Within this kind of a family situation, never mind school, never mind anything else. So, I mean, doesn't that play a, a in terms of the basic goodness that we have inside ourselves? is is this this comes from the buddhist we have a basic goodness and we we um we move towards compassionate action out of that basic goodness but here you're saying the the other side of the coin is part of our nature and i'm thinking maybe that's that, that's a learned part that is a part that's given by virtue of of causes and conditions of growing up in a, in an area in a family etc no well that's a hypothesis that it is a learned part um but there is some evidence that suggests that it may actually be at least part, partially innate um, there's evidence from very very small children infants basically oh. um that they respond more positively to faces like their, the, those that they see around them, like their their parents and others, um, uh, in a, they respond in a different way, in a more positive way to to faces of people who are different, such as blacks, for example. If if we're talking about a white family and white infants, um, and but but you know, the other way around as well. Maybe um, uh, black infants will respond more positively to black faces than to white ones. So. Um, so it's it's possible that, that this actually isn't simply learned. Um, I'm sure that I'm sure that the learning and the culture that you described reinforces it, but maybe it's able to do that so successfully, mm. precisely because it actually hooks into something that we already have. Um, and I think that's consistent with the ease with which politicians can stir it, can stir up racism, even when it didn't seem to be there before right and and we've seen this again and again i i mentioned at the beginning that my parents were refugees from the nazis and you know they grew up they they came from from vienna they grew up in a cosmopolitan city that uh yes there was certainly some anti-semitism but it wasn't that terrible it wasn't that bad in fact interestingly i read something that in 1934 the austrian uh dictator uh dolphus prohibited private clubs from discriminating against Jews. Really? Uh, and yet in the United States, of course, private clubs 
could and did, golf clubs, for example, did yeah. discriminate against Jews in the 30s. So in, one, in some sense, Austria was more progressive in eliminating <laughs> anti-Semitism than the United States. That's and correct. yet, you know, then you get these, these Nazis um, uh, stirring up this uh, uh, anti-Semitism and hatred against the Jews. Uh, and um, it's um, you know, very successful in, in winning a large following and, of course, committing uh, atrocious crimes. Uh, and then, you know, you, you have something repeating in, in a way um, in our own times in that, again, as I said, it seemed like we were moving towards more international cooperation, um, towards acceptance of the wrongness of uh, racism and extreme nationalism. You, you see it in the, saw it in the European Union, for example. And then you start to find that, again, politicians can stir it up, whether it's Donald Trump in the US or whether it's Viktor Orban in, in Hungary or uh, um, far-right movements in, uh, in Germany and in uh, the Netherlands, even in Sweden, which we think of as a rather progressive country, uh, and in the United Kingdom. Uh, uh, so uh, I, I think that the, the best explanation probably is that Somewhere in our nature, there is this latent animosity to to people who are different, and uh, and yeah, I'm sure that in some circumstances it, it it doesn't have any significant impact, but in but it's there waiting for certain circumstances when politicians can take advantage of it. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, a little depressing as well, but uh, yeah. Have to face the facts, I think, and they may be depressing. Uh, that's yeah. that's part of living in a world that was not designed by a beneficent creator. Yeah, that's that's just to me. That's more, you know, that kind of thinking. You know, the God, the ultimate decider and thinker of what's going to happen is that to me is 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 naive. And uh, it's way more complex and the you know interdependent than that kind of a thing. Uh, yeah. uh, I have my my dog here is my partner, by the way, if you hear. Great. Uh, what about karma? Okay, that was another whole chapter that. Yeah, well, that was quite funny because um, I I I asked. Uh, way to explain uh, the concept of karma, and I mentioned this this T-shirt that I'd seen somewhere yeah. um, of somebody who says um, uh, karma is is using the last piece of of uh, toilet paper and uh, then being the next person <laughs> to use the bathroom. Uh, yeah, and she she just laughed and said that has nothing at all to do with 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 karma. Yeah. Um, yeah, but but it is it does follow from this idea of uh, everything having a cause and everything that we do also having consequences. So in in, in that real. sense, yeah, uh, it's, in that sense, it's it's you know, quite compatible with the utilitarian view that says think about the consequences of what you're doing. Whatever you do will have consequences, and um, but it's also a warning for utilitarians because um, sometimes they there may be a certain amount of hubris in terms of thinking, well, um, in order to have good consequences, I can take some shortcuts here. Uh, I guess a famous example that we've had, um, maybe, I don't know uh, how you interpret it, would be, would be Sam Bankman-Fried's uh, you know, uh, and the collapse of the FTX cryptocurrency yeah. exchange where um, you know, he, had, he had made billions of dollars and... Uh, at least said that, that he did this in order to be able to to do good with it. He seemed to be somebody acting as a as a utilitarian, um, as an effective altruist, uh, who was building up his wealth so that he could then uh, do uh, lots of good things to make the world a better place. But in fact, he he took shortcuts, um, including it seems uh, using trust funds for of his clients to um, cover up for some bad investments that he had made in a separate uh, investment vehicle uh, and the whole thing collapsed. And I think that's a that's an interesting example of thinking that you can you can be confident that what you're doing is right because it has 
because you expect it to have the best consequences. But um, there are shortcuts you shouldn't take. And uh, if you like, those, that, the, those rules about not taking those shortcuts represent um, uh, the wisdom of, of past experiences, um, that uh, it's too easy to be overconfident in your ability to predict what, what your consequences will be. Yeah, I also think this is somebody without any kind of self-awareness uh, whatsoever and was completely naive thinking, I'm going to use this, you know, this bundle that I'm creating to do good in the world. Uh, I mean, you know, the reality of how deeply he was committed to his selfish motivations without realizing it, I think, is is a big part of what happened to this person. Um, so. You asked this, you know, so that particular quote that you made about karma and mm-hmm. and what you asked uh, Chao Wei, what is it that you think? And uh, she goes, the word karma comes from the Sanskrit. Its root, K-R, means, quote unquote, operation or, quote unquote, in process. Deeds of body, speech, and mind leave traces in this world. And these traces become manifest at an appropriate time when causes and conditions have ripened. Maybe that's a bit about, you know, the thinking of the other as being (laughs) someone to avoid, you know, and that 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 thing is in us, right? Mm -hmm. In fact, the concept of karma was mentioned in the ancient Sanskrit texts, the Upanishads. It is said of karma the self, Atman, does, and uh, I receive the consequences. I just think um, there was a, a great um, a friend of mine, and someone who's on this uh, Be Here Now podcast network. His name is Robert Svoboda. He wrote, he met uh, uh, one of these incredible beings in India in the mid-70s uh, who was an agora which is uh, a tantric, basically, and um, who was seemed to me, and I had some experience with different beings like this in India, quite legitimate. So he wrote a book about this, his experiences with the Agoris, and the last book was called The Law of Karma. And it used all kinds of fantastic anal- analogies uh, to get to the core of any kind of understanding because he would say rational mind is not understanding karma. It is not, you punch me, I'm going to punch you back or you, you know, that, and then I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to go back in the bathroom there. The role, I love that one. I never heard that or I never saw that t-shirt, Peter. That's great. Uh, But that is again, a very naive kind of, relationship with a very complex term and i love what she said uh you know that that uh, mind body deeds of body speech and mind leave traces in this world mm, yes i think that's a, a good way of putting it um and you have to be careful and think about what those traces might be and and what future effects they will have yeah but you mention it later on, um, you know, the naivete. If you do something wrong, your wrongdoing is bound to harm you, right? The rational kind of way people think about karma. Uh, and you say, I don't think that accords with our observations of the way the world works. Uh, it's not inevitable, inevitable that those who engage in wrongdoing will suffer from the consequences of their actions. Uh and you talk about a nuclear power plant and uh, the worst consequences are suffered by people who are opposed to the building of the plant, right? Who lived around there. By the way, uh, I don't know. This is just more suffering. But the, the nuclear plant, I saw this on 60 Minutes the other night. The nuclear plant that the, Ru- the Russians have basically lord over, they, they own it. And they're letting them, the Ukrainians, still run it. It's about three millimeters from you know, melting down. Yeah, uh, yeah. They have one power supplies in which you need to cool, right? Mm-hmm. Right. 
They have one left. If that goes, it's going to melt down. It's going to have extraordinary repercussions. Talk about karma in in Europe. Sorry to even bring that up. More just awful suffering. Yeah. Um, Yeah, there's terrible things happening in the world, uh, no doubt, uh, at the moment. Um, It's a tough time to be... To be an optimist, uh, I've generally been an optimist through most of my life, um, yeah. but it's it's certainly got harder in the, in, in the last few years. And uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine was was one of those things. Certainly, yeah. climate change is another long term one which we've still not solved. Although I wouldn't say it's hopeless that uh, we will, but um, but we're not doing nearly enough. And of course, what's happening in Israel and Gaza at the moment is. Uh, is another uh, yeah. reason why it's very difficult to be optimistic. Yeah. I believe that, uh, well, I believe, there, I think there really is a collective karma that we are living through right now. As you mentioned earlier, the turn towards nationalism is is one mm. very revealing part of that. Let's get more positive, though, Peter, here, because uh, here's something from Chao Wei. A person is filled with the joy of Dharma. In other words, we might say that a person is filled with the happiness that comes from the realization of truth, which is Dharma. As practitioners go deeper, they will unavoidably witness the phenomena of the disturbance of the body and mind, which is centered on an issue called, quote-unquote, self-love in Buddhism. This is an attachment derived from instinct and it drives human beings to continue developing developing and seeking enjoyment from sensations. In addition, in addition, it resists any threat that will terminate our lives. This strong attachment that originates from self-love cannot be stopped by rationality due to its deep-rooted connection with the survival instinct. And she goes on talking about if we are not able to let go of this self-attachment, self-love. Um, what the Buddhists have all kinds of great expressions about that, uh, that self-love. Eventually, we'll have to deal with the suffering accompanying the birth and cessation of any impermanent phenomena. How do you respond to that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's, it's, a, it's a very powerful thought. Um, in some ways, it's a very attractive thought, uh, but I have to say, it's one that I have not really internalized and accepted, um, uh, in the sense of accepting it in my inner being and my inner thinking. Right? So, for example, you say that uh, Chao Wei says um, you know, this self-love makes us resist any threat to the destruction of our, our being of ourself. In other words, our death. Um, but, um, and, and so, you know, some of the implication of that is that if you overcome this self-love, uh, you can face death with greater equanimity. Um, I don't know that I have achieved that. Um, I certainly, um, you know, I'm, I'm 77 now, so I should be thinking, wow, I've had a great life. I've lived reasonably long lifespan, you know, more than the biblical three score and 10 years. Um, (laughs) uh, but you know, um, I still would like to live um, uh, some more good years uh, as long as the quality of my life is fine. Uh, I don't want to live if the quality of my life drops to a point where uh, I can't, can't do anything, can't contribute, have to be looked after. Um, but so should I be striving to achieve this equanimity where I'm um, not worried or anxious about threats to, to my life? I don't know. Um, anyway, I, I, I would have to say I have not achieved that. Uh, and um, I don't feel that I'm really on a path to achieving it, um, certainly not anytime soon. Yeah, I don't know about where you get to the point where you're no longer attached to your body. I mean, that's that's a that's a big ask, you know, in terms of dying. Mm. But I think certainly if that, thing in us that is so selfish and self-motivated and manipulative. I think when that gets 
exposed, shall we say. And once it gets exposed, it uh, can have more of a tendency to fall away because, again, I go back to the natural good Buddhism speaks to that's deep inside each one of us. And when that uh, self-motivating factor, self-love, probably not a great term, uh, but when that starts to fall away and just dissipates so you're not thinking about yourself all the time, you, it starts to, uh, well, you know, what, what can I do for you? Right, not so much. Yeah. What can you do for me all the time? When that starts to happen, I think yes, a, a certain equanimity comes into it, and a certain more uh, larger acceptance and spaciousness around impermanence, death. Yeah, I mean, I certainly, uh, yeah, I, I spend a lot of time thinking about what I can do for others. Um, that's easy enough to do, but that's still part of living a life for me that I find rewarding and fulfilling and enjoyable. Uh, and, you know, part of the reason I might say why I want to be able to continue to live for a few more years is that I think I can still do good things, yeah. um, including you know, like talking to you and spreading ideas about how to live well, um, but also more explicitly in terms of uh, trying to alert people to how awful factory farming is for both animals and the environment and the planet and trying to get them to move towards alternatives to that, um, trying to get people to do more for those in extreme poverty, the sorts of things that I've been writing about for the past 50 years. Um, I think I can still do a little more in those areas. So so it's not entirely uh, self-love that is um, making me hope that I can continue to do that for some years to come, but, um, but self-love is a part of it. I'm not going to deny that. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not pointing to, that's why I don't think self-love is quite the right word, but selfishness is mm. more of what I'm Right. Saying. I think selfishness is, is different, right? But different from accepting, you know, this, this Buddhist talked about, you use the word uh, impermanence um, of the self or the ephemeral nature of the self. I mean, I accept as a matter of fact, obviously, that, well, my view, my myself is not going to continue indefinitely um, because I think it ends with the death of the body. So... Um, yes, it has a, uh, you know, it may last 80 years, it may last 90 years, rare cases it may last 100 years, but it's certainly going to end at some point. Yeah, but you know those people that have passed on that are dearly beloved to us? That love is real. Uh, so, you know, that love, love is real and it's, it would be nice to be to think that my work will be remembered in some way and that some people will think... Uh, with love or positively about uh, my life and what I've done. Um, I think that's great. Uh, um, but I won't be there to benefit from it. Um, you know, uh, I, I, won't be, I won't be sitting up above somewhere looking at it and saying, oh, how nice it is that people are thinking about me in a positive way now that I'm gone. I don't know. Maybe those love vibrations that are being sent, they go into uh, a complex interconnected area that this, you know, the Buddhists might be right about the fact that a something is going through incarnations to finally become free. However, which way they, you know, say it, uh, you never know. You never know. Look, um, can can you be a hundred percent certain that that isn't the case? No. Um, but I still think it's, it's 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 highly probable that it isn't the case. Uh huh. Okay. Well, we're going to end on that difference. Okay. Because uh, right. we're at the end of the podcast. Um, I will say one thing though before we go, uh, because you know what you've done for animal rights and and so on is phenomenal. I I uh, I am so aligned with you. Except I have to admit. And you know I'm I'm vegetarian, but I eat fish. Right. And and I'm reading in the book. Well, you know, you you've made a, a you know a decision that fish can't feel pain. This this is some this is more of the self-absorbed manipulative mind, right? Yeah. So, 
I th- yeah. yeah, I think it's pretty clear that fish can feel pain. Um, I think the evidence yeah. is, is is it's got stronger actually in in the period since I first wrote Animal Liberation in 1975. There was some room for doubt about that. I still thought you know very likely that they can, but I think there's been good scientific research, which I mentioned in uh, Animal Liberation. Now the updated version of the book that came out last year. Um, so yeah, I think you have to accept that fish yeah. can feel pain and they are suffering, and uh, you know particularly those who are crowded together in aquaculture, as a lot of them are now, produced yeah. in, in basically factory farming underwater. Um, it's yeah. it's not a not a good existence for them. How about that film about oct- uh, octopus? Octopus, okay. my teacher, yeah. Oh, well, that's right. And I think the capacity to feel pain is not limited to vertebrates. That's also true. I think it definitely applies to octopus, uh, applies to lobster and crabs as well, it seems. Um, yeah. Okay, so more eye-opening <laughs> fess up to reality instead of my projections of separating out who feels pain and who doesn't. Sorry about that. Yeah. No, it's been great okay. hanging with you, Peter. Good, it's been very good talking to you. I've enjoyed yeah. it. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody uh, will link up Peter's book too so you can get into it. It's chock full of, of very deep thoughts, shall we say. Please do, yeah. And, and uh, yeah, we look forward to uh, seeing you and keep in touch in the future. Yeah, certainly. Let me know when this goes to uh, goes to air and we'll spread it on social media. Right. And we'll see you all next week. Mind rolling on Be Here Now Network.